0: With us we have nick siever who is a assistant professor of anthropology at tufts university and who pretty recently released the fabulous book computing taste that we're going to be talking about today Uh, nick welcome to money for nothing thank you yeah no this book is like great i really really like it and it's it's so cool to read an anthropological take uh, a technologically oriented anthropological take of a topic that gets dealt with in in so many ways that often kind of take the technology and the social aspects of the technology especially within those companies kind of for granted so i think that this 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 work is doing like really really fabulous really fabulous work and it was really really exciting to read so to get started i guess to start from the most basic point, maybe what is a recommendation algorithm?
1: Ooh, okay. This is good. This, <laughs> this is complicated already. Um, so the basic idea with a recommendation, and I think this is, we're now at a point where a lot of people have some familiarity with it, um, is that these are any sort of, you know, computational software system that tries to suggest new material to you on the basis of, some kind of information about your preferences. That's like a super broad uh, way to put it. I think a concrete way that's useful is to do it historically and to say, okay, well the earliest recommender system for music in the sort of contemporary sense that we would say nowadays um, was a system called Ringo. Uh, It came out of the MIT media lab out of Patty Ma's uh, software agents group there in the mid nineties. And the basically the way that worked is pretty recognizable even today, Uh, you would, fill out a sort of survey of artists uh, and how much you liked them. And the system would do some basic correlations, statistical measures between you and other people who had filled out that survey. And it would basically recommend stuff that other people who were mostly like you had listened to that you had not. You know, so if you liked 90% of the same things as someone else, but there's some other artists they like that you didn't mention, um, let's recommend that to you that basic idea is ends up being called collaborative filtering and that's more or less the beating heart of most recommender systems all the way up to basically the present day with some changes
0: so that's kind of like the basic like what they do i think the amazing thing or the, the really exciting thing that you do in this book is kind of dig into what <laughs> what they are or <laughs> how they're how they're put together because like from that description, one might assume um, that there's like a, a standard pat way to 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 deal with this problem, and there's kind of like a, a you know a technically correct solution, and then it kind of works, you you know in in something like a straightforward, basic, almost contextless manner. And this book kind of explores the ways that, in fact, if you dig into how recommendation algorithms are generated and how they change over time it's 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 anything but that there are all these other kind of messy cultural factors and product beliefs and all kinds of things that really shape how these how these 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 programs are put together and how they work
1: yeah so one of i think one of the funny things about recommender systems as a kind of domain of engineering work is that there's really no way to know whether they work or not Right. There's no there's no (laughs) objective measure that you can say that's a good one. Right. Like that's a good recommendation. Now, arguably, this is true, even in domains where we think it's not true, you know, like airplanes or something like that. You say, well, as long as they fly, you know. people do study airplanes from this perspective and say that's not quite true there, but nobody involved in making a recommender system is going to come out and say, yes, there is one objective way that recommender systems should obviously work. And once we achieve that, then we will just know that we're done. Uh, And so what you end up with, are a lot of efforts to build recommender systems to tune them to change the data that they work on to change the way that their results are delivered, that are also tied up in this question of like, what is a recommender supposed to do? How do you know, if it's done what you want? And maybe you know, what should you want? Anyway, and I think that that's a really important question to stay with when we're talking about music recommendation, really any recommendation, but I know music, so let's stick there. But music recommendation in particular, because a lot of people all around have assumptions that these systems work in like one obvious way to one obvious kind of goal. Um, And nothing is obvious, actually, about these systems. That's why one of the reasons I like anthropology as a field is because we get to go in and ask kind of silly questions and pretend that nothing. Uh, nothing is obvious to us, right? Why would you even want a recommender system in the first place? It seems super obvious to the people who build it. but I don't know. maybe it's not
0: just just to focus in on that point for a second that there's no i guess outside of a recommendation of you, of a specific recommendation system way to evaluate the functioning of a recommendation system. And is that because at one level, like it literally. For almost from like a like a set of like business tactical decision it's unclear what an ideal recommendation result would be or is it because there's something more ineffable about like you're saying like what a recommender is supposed to do or 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 as it like, likely is like both.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I should say it's not that there's no way to evaluate whether these systems work or not, but rather that there is, are so many ways that you could evaluate whether they're going to work or not, that there's not one specific way. And yeah, I think you you sort of nailed it. There's on the one hand, like a business goals question, right? Of like, what's this recommender for? Uh, why do we have one? If you know, if I run a, a platform and I have a recommender system, what do I want that recommender to do? Uh, I think there's broadly a kind of convergence about what these things should be doing in industry, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, um, which is to say, you know, the goal of a recommender is to get people to keep using your system there's a lot in between there, right? There's a lot of like, okay, well, what does it do then to get them to keep using their system? Does it look up their personal information and blackmail them (laughs) into staying, right? No, Uh, it does. What does it do? It should do something. Uh, It should give you something that, that you want. Okay, well, how do we know if you're getting what you want? Uh, maybe you stick around on the platform, right? We Maybe we measure your satisfaction in terms of how much listening you do uh, and surprise, that's great. That metric is the same. <laughs> we want, that is our goal. We want you to listen more. We want you to stay on Spotify or whatever. And uh, we're going to measure how satisfied you are in terms of how much you listen. Um, so broadly speaking, there's that as as a kind of common metric that I talk about in the book but I do think there's this deeper question that you know I try to take seriously the idea that building a recommender system is something reasonable to do that there are you know uh, uh, there's a logic behind it it's not just this sort of venal I want to make a lot of money for big streaming companies because you know for a long time we had recommender systems without any big streaming companies they're not the same thing Um, as on-demand streaming. Um, And so I think there's fundamentally a question about taste, actually, and about what the object of a recommender system is. Um, Because taste, as people in the social sciences tend to know it, uh, is a weird thing, right? It's hard to say what a recommender system is doing. It's going to recommend you stuff that you don't know about yet, in theory, (laughs) ideally, uh, that you might like, because you might like anything, but you won't like everything, And there's this funny question of like, what exactly are you doing then if you're making a recommendation, right? Are you guessing what someone's taste is, pigeonholing them and then just finding other stuff that was already in that pigeonhole? Or are you trying to help them explore? And if they're only exploring some of the stuff, then like, is that a bigger version of the same pigeonhole? There's like a lot of weird philosophical questions that come up. Uh, when you start to think about what exactly it is that a recommender su- system is supposedly, modeling. yeah,
0: and it's really interesting to think about that just kind of as a as a as a product of a very specific stage of consumer capitalism and the culture industries too, right? Like thinking about almost like you could imagine like the opposite of a recommender system, like I don't know Chicago's Great Books course, you know that this is a set of texts (laughs) that have innate value that you are supposed to grapple with for your good. I mean, is my understanding of that system or thinking about in a musical sense, like uh, the idea of like the classical maestro, who's going to like put together a program of music that the challenge is, you know, in, in, in the, in the, you know, the platonic ideal, Minus power relations, minus colonialism. But like <laughs> um, you know, that, that you're gonna listeners are gonna grapple with in some way. And that this is is, is more complicated because it's both shaping taste and reflecting tastes that are valorized in a kind of Was a democratic way?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. There's a funny joke that sometimes went around in in the world of people making these systems, which is that, you know, you've got all these features in a big recommender system, you know, about the kinds of listeners that listen to a song, or maybe your system has some audio data. And so you know something about, you know, whether this this song sounds particularly electronic or not. Um, Wouldn't it be easier if you just had a feature that said whether the songs were any good and you could just recommend music based on whether they were good or not? And, you know, it's a joke about (laughs) that exact thing, right? A joke about that idea of, of like, maybe, you know, one way to do a recommendation would just be to imagine that there's some quality of objects that means they're good. And it's funny, in part, coming from the social sciences, because that is the way that we talk in, you know, sociology and anthropology about kind of what theories of taste used to be, right? This idea that taste used to be like, you know, you have good taste or not. And that meant you liked things that were good and goodness kind of resided in the object. And you see, of course, over the course of the 20th century, this great democratization of of, of taste that does not mean that, you know, everything that's valuable gets an audience or anything but it does mean that there's a lot less command of this idea that you know there's some good thing that everybody should be listening to and recommender systems play in that space right where there's not a lot of moralizing about whether any particular song or artist is good or bad Uh, certainly not at the level of the the technical system although you know people involved might have their own opinions Uh, and it matches a lot of what we'll say in the social sciences about taste right which is that we shouldn't think about taste as being you know whether people are listening to good stuff or not we should think about taste as being this kind of arbitrary set of preferences that is unevenly distributed across a group of people And that's something that we can kind of map out. And it's it's arbitrary to a certain extent, but people learn it over time. They feel it very intensely. It's connected to all sorts of other aspects of their social identity. Uh, And, you know, recommender systems are quite compatible with that basic idea.
0: So going off what you said kind of at the the beginning of that comment, which is, you know, when you in the world of the people who make these systems and and i feel like that's such a key part of this project and is something that really makes it stand out from the kind of the broader set of discourses about algorithmic culture generally with, with a couple of exceptions but um certainly like this level and depth of thinking about as you kind of i think really compellingly show something that's kind of as culturally specific as music recommendations that that the folks who are making these things really do care about music um, and they really care about recommending and that instead of being this kind of monolithic force acting on culture in the world that the the companies that are developing these recommendation engines are are sites of culture and are kind of echoing and mirroring and transmuting cultural forces that are running through the rest of society and that really I think you, you argue here that they really need to be understood that way to understand or to get a get a better grasp of what the systems they produce the very influential systems they produce are then kind of doing in the world and doing to the listeners. With the listeners.
1: Yeah, I think you've hit on something really important here. And there's a lot of things that are important that cross through this. So I want to make sure to get them out uh, clearly. Uh, Yeah, so on the one hand, right, I think my approach in the book, which is unapologetically anthropological, uh, is to really try and say, you know, what we call to use what we call in anthropology interpretive charity. So this idea of like, okay, I'm going to look at how this group of people does stuff in the world. And I'm going to work from the assumption that it kind of makes sense, but also that it needs a little bit of like talking about to, to figure out how it makes sense to try to get out the logic. And the cha- the challenge here is that that's not the same thing as saying that it is good or right or that they ought to do it or that the things that they think you know uh, you know are 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 the way that they ought to be thinking if we want the world to be a better place or something. It's totally possible for all of the things that they think and that I talk about in the book to be, you know, reasonable locally and to have all sorts of bad consequences outside of this local context. Like that's that's totally possible. Uh, and so I recognize that one of the things that sets this book apart from other writing on algorithms, on recommender systems, on the role of these systems in music in particular and culture in general, is that I'm not... Super critical of what they think most of the time I talk about sort of some of the consequences in the book But I see my main goal as being to try to unpack what's going on here and to really really lay it out uh, in kind of excruciating detail and and I don't think that means that everybody should do that. I do think this is kind of a healthy part of an overall critical ecosystem. So that you know, we need people who are going out and really you know giving companies like Spotify a hard time, for instance. Um, even if that's not the focus of the book here, so I hope that people don't read it and think that I'm suggesting that people who are you know critical along other lines of these. Systems or these companies are making a mistake, I just think that it's very useful to have something you know empirical like I've got in the book to hold to hold on to So the other thing that's that's interesting here is this question about culture right so there is one line of critique of recommender systems which I have been uh, annoyed by for a long time, which is this idea that recommender systems are technology, the capital T uh, and they come into the world of culture with capital C and they mess it up right? They come in from the outside of culture, and they screw up what culture is, they don't get culture, they make it so that we can't, you know, that culture gets 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 uh, distorted in their image and all of that. And the problem with that argument, uh, there's, there's a lot of problems with that argument. Um, One of which is that it assumes that our culture doesn't have technology in it already. And the other is that it assumes that our technology doesn't have culture in it already. So to give two examples, um, music, I find a really interesting domain to think about precisely because uh, it carries all of these ideas about, you know, human expressiveness. It's the universal language It's this like uniquely emotional medium um, that we think of as being very deeply human. And yet it's full of technology. Right? there's microphones and instruments and recordings and streaming services and concert halls and all of this stuff. We don't have music without technology. So it's always embodied this kind of paradoxical position of representing the human in a very you know substantial way for people, but also being chock full of technology. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, recommender systems exist in the world, right? They are full of people These systems, they're designed by people, they're updated by people, they're revised by people who work in companies and have all sorts of ideas about the way they want them to work. And those people are informed by culture. They're not stupid, right? They know something about what they're doing and their work, the results of their work, these recommender systems go out in the world and they affect culture. They don't only affect music by being better or worse at representing music from the outside. They affect music sort of from the inside, as it were, right? Like what it means to listen to music today is different than what it meant to listen to music in a world before recommender systems existed. Um, And that's not to say that that's good, um, but rather to say that that kind of influence in the cultural sphere happens not because technologies come in from the outside, but rather because technology is at the inside, technology is at the core, or one of the things at the core of, of what happens when we listen to music and so of course it's going to shape the way music works. And that's why it's so important to study, not because we need to kick it out, but because it's going to have these these, these effects. And then there's there's actually one other line uh, that you mentioned that I thought was important too, or you you mentioned that I describe how these people in this, in the in these uh companies and research labs that I talk to, how they care about music. And I think that's also really important to keep in mind as well, is that critique of you know technology coming in from the outside and screwing everything up is often predicated on this weird idea that the people who work in these settings don't understand music. They don't care about music. They don't have any interest in music whatsoever. They're not legitimately interested in music. Uh, That's not true, right? The people who work in these companies, at least the ones that I spoke with, understood their work to be motivated by a really strong care for music. Now, That doesn't mean they can't screw it up. That doesn't mean that the things that they do can't be bad for music in some big sense. Um, But what it does mean is that we shouldn't be so quick to say, oh, well, if only they knew about music and (laughs) cared about music, they would do the right thing. Because we don't know what the right thing is, right? It's It's not obvious. And they are definitely motivated by a care for music. It just manifests in this particular way. Uh, that some people think is is evidence that they don't understand music at all, but I don't think that line of critique gets us very far.
0: Yeah, And I mean, I would even add another gloss on that that uh, on that critique, which is is I think that um, you know the the recommendation systems have come up come in and screwed up music. Uh, it, music has a you know as you're kind of saying like has a very real history, and it's not like radio stations weren't fundamentally shaping the categories and genres of musical production prior to Spotify (laughs) like these you know there's a long history I mean I I read this as as just not just just another but as another chapter in a long history of the kind of economic slash technical construction of musical listening that goes back to in some ways like you know what I would argue is the creation of modern music as you know modern commoditized music at the turn of the 20th century the tin pan sheet music
1: yes the advent of recording or the advent of sheet music or the advent of uh, you know <laughs> concerts that feature music by more than one composer right there's lots of spots that you could imagine going to to throughout this history i do think it's important get your technology
0: out of my cds yeah exactly
1: i don't want i i miss the old days where there wasn't technology in the way and i just got to listen to my vinyl records right but I, i i think it's important to keep in mind that while that argument is is i like it and it makes sense to me and it's an argument for thinking about you know there's always been to a certain extent a kind of like other than music influence in music which Suggests it's not really other than music. I don't want that to be a a way to dismiss all sorts of critique. Because, like, sure, yeah, there's always been mediation. There's always been, you know, uh, record industries and all these, you know, uh, CD deals with with DJs and radio stations or whatever. Of course, there can still be problems now. I think the the important thing to keep in mind, though, is we don't want to hold out some sort of like unmediated, pure version of music because that has never existed. So we would do well to remember that the alternative to any of these systems right now is not some world where like, obviously music just works in some normal way that we can go back to with no problems. Um, So I don't want to dismiss the critiques. I think actually this is a way to take them even more seriously because you want to say, well, yeah, this is the very stuff uh, through which people encounter music. So like the argument I make in the book, you know, is it's called computing taste because it's partly, you know, joking on that there's no accounting for taste idea Uh, and saying, you know, well, here we are, we're doing it all the time, all this accounting. But it's also trying to suggest that taste is like the object of computing in a really serious way here, right? Taste is changing uh, as a result of these computational systems. And it's not changing because they're wrong. It's changing because they are becoming part of the infrastructure through which we find and listen to music.
0: So you know, you kind of gave a pocket history a little while ago about the ways in which this computing, this process of computing tastes changed. But I thought it'd be worthwhile to kind of go through, um, I mean, it's not perfectly stadial, but you kind of have a of a, a distinctive development that you sketch out throughout the book in a little bit more detail. And and, and to start with, I mean, you, you kind of describe this idea of, of, of collaborative filtering, of kind of creating um almost like taste self-reported taste fingerprints and then you know suggesting people uh oh you like Radiohead and you like Tricky you like Radiohead and Tricky and also Bjork so like maybe I would like Bjork as like a very very simple version of how that would work but but you also you couple it in the book with a really really fascinating discussion of the perceived problem of too much music and the ways in which these early recommendation systems were being designed for this seeming problem, which, I mean, may have existed in the world, but I think it does, you know, your, your technique of just saying, well, it definitely, the, the perception of that problem definitely existed for the people who are making the algorithms, and just denaturalizing that like endlessly stated complaint um, was so fascinating to me. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about how um, the, the you're thinking about these early recommendations systems connected to that
1: yeah so this is part of the book that really started to come out for me while i was working on revising it from my doctoral dissertation uh, which it started as into the book it became uh, this idea of like why do recommender systems exist right what are they for what is the point of them and basically if you ask anyone i'm fairly confident in this still if you ask anyone who makes recommender systems why they do it they will almost always say something about information overload uh, in response, right? The reason we have a recommender system is because, you know, there's 40 million songs on Spotify. And how are you going to what to listen to. Um, this is true back through history. It does not require 40 million songs on Spotify. I mentioned Ringo earlier. If you read the uh, the papers about Ringo from the Media Lab group, every single one of them talks about information overload as the background condition under which it makes sense to have this sort of thing. And it was one of those things that, you know, I, I'm from, broadly speaking, the same sort of cultural universe as the people who build these systems. And it made sense to me, Right sure, I get it. And then I started thinking, you know, I don't know, is it a problem? Or like, if it is a problem, who is it a problem for? Um, because you started to see these examples of like somebody who would get a, you know, music streaming account and think, okay, what am I going to listen to? And then they would, what would they do? They would just think of the last artist that they listened to uh, and on, a, on the radio and like put that person's name in and listen to that. And then when they were done, they were done. And this was framed as a kind of problem for that person, right? Not just a problem for the streaming company, but like that person is has a problem. Uh, they're, they're, they they're need help. <laughs> like they need help finding other stuff. Uh, and I was thinking, wait a minute, maybe they don't, right? Maybe that person doesn't care. They've listened to the music, they're done and they're okay with it. And so I realized that this, this myth of information overload uh, was a really important story about the way that people are and what people need that underlies the design of these systems. And so I start to call it a myth in the book in a very technical anthropology sense. So I don't mean myth as a lie. We don't say myth to mean like, oh, that's just fake. Um, a myth is in brief, it's, it's, it's a story about the way the world is, right? So we talk about people being overloaded and we're not really making factual claims there. We're really talking about just like what it is to be a person. And so people making these systems will say, oh, yeah, people are overwhelmed right now. They're totally overwhelmed. If you do some empirical research, you might find that some people don't seem overwhelmed. They don't seem to care at all. Um, But that doesn't matter. That's not what this myth is about. The myth is about what it's like to be a person right now in the information age. It's overwhelming. We need recommender systems to help us. And so recommender systems come in as a kind of solution to this information overload problem. And as I was working on this part of the book, I started to read all of this historical work on information overload, you know, going back to the early modern period after the invention of the printing press and studying, you know, scholars in early modern Europe who are like, oh my God, there's so many books. What are we going to do? And it was, you know, it's always funny to hear the small, the relatively small numbers that get trotted out when people are like, ah, there's like a thousand books. What are we going to do there's that's so many books and you think like, aha if, if only you knew or you go farther forward through time and you keep finding examples of this like in the early 80s there are examples of people in computer science saying there are so many emails what are we going to do it's like if only you knew guys how many emails there were going to be later um, and again i say this not to discount any of these or to say like ah, oh, you're you're worried about information overload is not real because people have always been worried about this but rather to point to information overload as not really being a historical claim. It's not like a, oh, right now we've finally passed the threshold. At some point there was an acceptable threshold and now there's not, and that's what happened. But rather to say that this is like a kind of story, it's a kind of relational story where we don't just have too much stuff. We have a certain kind of person in relation to that stuff who is understood to be overwhelmed. And you need that kind of person to exist. You need that person to want to have already listened to all of the music to start to feel like a 40 million song catalog is a kind of threat rather than just a straightforward resource, right? Like, why is it a problem that there's so many songs? Oh, it's a problem if you wish that you already had listened to everything. Uh, And that's true for a lot of people who are in these spaces who really Love listening to music. They desire to listen to a lot of different kinds of music. They enjoy it. Um, they have what some of these historians of overload call um, an uneasy balance between desire and anxiety. Right? It's like you want it, but it's kind of it's like oh, I'm nervous about how much stuff that is. Uh, in any case, this is part of a story in the book about how people imagine the users of recommender systems. What kind of Person they are. And those early systems really imagine that the user is a kind of thwarted music enthusiast, right? Like you'd be a big music fan. um, You would like to go discover new stuff. You just don't have enough time. Uh, And so this system is to sort of help you like pursue that goal, which you sort of intrinsically have. And what changes over time from the sort of mid 90s before the present, basically, is that the typical, the modal user stops being this enthusiast, this person who loves music so much that they're like overwhelmed by how much they love it. uh, And instead becomes this kind of person who maybe doesn't care that much about music. And now they're overwhelmed by music, not because they love it too much, but because there's just so much of it out there and they don't really care. They just want to hear something. Uh, And that's a really different kind of user it's a different kind of listener to imagine and it results in all sorts of changes in how these systems are designed because they are built with a kind of model of their user in them like basically all technologies are and uh as that model user changes you can see it change in the sort of infrastructure of recommendation
0: and this is kind of what leads to kind of what i would call like the uh Maybe like the uneasy behavioralism part of the of this like development of recommendation systems in the book, right? That there's this sense that they want, it, it, it seems like that the same folks who are building these early recommendation systems, it doesn't seem like, and maybe I'm I'm projecting my my own like uh, experience of,, uh, you know, getting to college and downloading, you know, hundreds and hundreds of gigs of music and then being stressed out by it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it seems like that, that as you know, that, that sense of overabundance and and the problems related to it of the certain like uh pitchforky cohort <laughs> that works in these tech companies um, seems to go throughout maybe, but there's a period of time where it, the, the sense of, um, it seems like as these systems get, you know, maybe more incorporated into companies, um, as they get access to more data, where they st- stop shifting, I think you describe it as a st- shift from kind of a musical taste as a kind of something that you could self-identify into musical taste as kind of a, um, almost like a demographic description of of listening habits that you would fall into
1: yeah so the way that i would put that is that you have this real change in the object of, of recommendations so i mentioned that you know basic collaborative filtering idea of like here's your ratings we're going to find other people who liked what you liked um, i can't remember exactly the point scale for ringo i want to say it was like seven or nine points or something like that really like kind of detailed you know it's not thumbs up thumbs down it was like explicit ratings uh, one thing that happens over the course of this history is that you see a real transition from uh sorry, I should say the the way that the rating the recommendation would happen then is that at some point in the system there's a predicted rating, right? An idea like, okay, you're gonna like this movie on Netflix, five stars, and so we're gonna show it to you. Um and for a while, like a platform like Netflix would actually show you that. They'd actually show you, you know, we guess that you're gonna like it this much. I don't know if they still do. Um
0: I don't think they do. But the, pro- the problem
1: of doing that is it's you always can weird when you re- <laughs> right if, so, if they show it to you you might you might yeah be like,
0: yeah no 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 a- absolutely and and that's one of the weird things with all this like this very you know I've been going pressing Netflix on my computer and what Netflix is changes is like yeah when did that go away
1: <laughs> it's it's surprisingly hard I've found as someone who's worked in this field now long enough that things have changed under my feet to just remember what it was like before like a year ago right any of these things I think people have so, have really we get so naturalized into the way these interfaces work that, you know, well, we can talk more about this, this, this later, but I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, the idea that recommender systems and streaming are the same thing as each other. Very often people will talk to me as though that's true. Even though, you know, we didn't have on-demand streaming for like most of the history of music recommender systems to date, it just feels like they go together because that's just the way they are now. In any case, what you get in this history, is originally the recommender problem is a ratings prediction problem, right? It's like, I'm gonna predict it. And if I predict your rating better, that probably means you're gonna like it better. Uh, and that's that. Now this assumption sort of falls apart over time, partly because it was not true, right? Like you can't, like people didn't care that much uh, about, you know, beyond a certain point, I don't care how precise if it's 4.3 stars or four stars, whatever, I don't care. It uh, doesn't matter to me. Um, you might also say, as some people in the field did that, that people's preferences are are noisy, right? Which is to say, I don't have the same preferences from moment to moment. So you can't predict how much I like a thing any more precisely than I have my own preference, right? Like maybe it changes uh, over time. It's not always the same. And so what you get is a kind of transformation from explicit ratings as the object of recommendation to implicit ratings, which is this kind of stuff I mentioned earlier about, you know, how many times did you listen to a song? How long were you listening for? All of these sort of behavioral measures that we think of as being kind of the stuff of, of a big data, right, like now now we have this because all these streaming platforms can really pretty easily gather information. You know, Spotify, for example, like needs to know what you play to make it work, right? To send you the songs, to. To pay the to pay the rights holders right they'd need a record of that anyway uh, so it's already part of sort of what the infrastructure is doing and so when you with that transition from predicting ratings to kind of anticipating behavior and to modeling taste as a kind of behavior you really get a change in the way that these systems work that goes along with that change that I mentioned in the idealized, user. So once the idealized user stops being an expert who like wants to give themselves, so I give ratings, right, to go through and be like, I like it this much and this much and this much. Um, it becomes, they become this like less enthusiastic listener, the ideal modal user uh, who doesn't want to interact, right? They don't want to produce a lot of data explicitly, but of course they're going to click on stuff. And so people will start to argue that you need these behavioral measures because of what listeners are like, because your typical listener doesn't want to interact very much. This is like the way uh, to get them recommendations, because otherwise you just don't have any you don't have any data at all. And so I think what this does is to get back to your point, changes what taste is in a certain extent from your expression of what you like, right? is like your list of things that you might put up intentionally on a Facebook profile or something, which of course is its own mediation, um, to a kind of behavior, right? Like taste becomes a not explicit kind of statement about yourself, but rather a thing that you do. And again, that's not an unreasonable way to think about taste, actually. It has some weird consequences in this setting, but there's plenty of work in the social sciences that suggests that we think about taste as a kind of activity rather than a kind of um, identity, although obviously activities and identities are related. So when you said it's you know sort of a demographic kind of category, I was thinking, oh, that's so interesting because a lot of what goes on in this space is the suggestion that this is a way of displacing demographics, right? We don't need to use conventional demographics like race or age or gender, um, because according to the folks in this space, this behavioral data is more legitimate than that, right? It's less, uh, it it is the stuff itself almost, right? So it doesn't feel like importing some other categorization that would, you know, box you in, so to speak.
0: I mean, but there's also an interesting thing where, I mean, in some ways I'm reading you uh, as saying that if initially these recommendation engines are created to model the behavior in some ways of like the music fan programmers, you know, that in some ways mm-hmm. that their expectation is that the end user is someone similar to them. You have an interesting part of the book where you kind of talk about the ways in which with this shift to a vision of a more passive user, there's also a kind of importation or maybe expression of you know these kind of like gender descriptions that have a really long history in the ways that consumer society functions and certainly the way that um, the music industry considers musical consumption and female musical consumption in particular and that almost you know as the as the end users stop being in some way painted as the same people as the creators because they're passive listeners, they also get m- gendered female in some ways, uh, in interesting ways, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think it's a the gender question is is looms really large here, and there's some really interesting work about the sort of gendered history of background listening that I cite in the book. So, the musicologist Christina Bod, for instance, is a great article about the history of this kind of. Uh, uh, I, this idea that the background listener is a kind of degraded listener that's associated with the feminization of that position. And I think it's really important to keep in mind because some people, when they start to make critiques of algorithmic recommendation and the idea of like, oh, it's music for the background. It's not serious listening or whatever. This idea that 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 recommenders are contributing to this kind of passivization of listening, they're playing in this history, uh, where passive listening is, is bad, uh, and passive listening is feminized. And I don't, you know, I want to take seriously that there's different ways this that this could be configured. Um, but it's worth keeping that in mind that, that there's this idea that, you know, listening in the background is essentially a, a, a womanly and therefore bad thing to do is a kind of bias that we want to avoid. I would hope in, in, in talking about, in talking about these systems. And yeah, there's this funny bit where, you know, I, I, it's a common critique and a reasonable critique made of the tech industry that it solves its own problems, right? Like that's why a lot of these things exist. They're designed to solve the problem of, you know, dudes in their twenties and thirties, uh, who don't live with their mom anymore and want someone to do their laundry or something like that. Right. Um, and the, the thought goes, you know, if only they didn't think that way, uh, they would make better they would make better choices they would make better s- systems maybe if there were other people in the room uh, they would also help them make better choices uh, and i think that what you see in this part of the book is that you know by the time i was doing fieldwork with these folks in the sort of mid 2010s mid early 2010s now um you saw people really take to heart the idea that they were not like their users and that was important for them to remember. Sure. However, the terms by which they understood themselves to not be like their users were sort of particular and not ones we might want to agree with. So that often as I as I argue in this chapter of the book um, came out in the sense of like, okay, well, we're all really big music fans. That why, that's why we work at these companies, right? That's why we do this. Uh, so our tendency is going to be to find things that real music nerds think are interesting, to find those interesting and to underappreciate what's useful for someone who's not that into music. Right. How do we learn things about people who are not that into music? Well, at this point in time, um, the answer was not like go out and interview them, um, but rather take advantage of these huge, sto- huge stores of, you know, trace data that we have in our logs and use that as a sort of scientific scientistic privileged, um, you know, source of information about what users are like. I should note that this is in some sense, part of the book that I think has maybe aged out already. Um, from when I, when I did the field work in that, you know, a lot of these companies Nowadays do have user researchers in-house who are doing much, much more qualitative work with users that than I ever saw uh, when I was doing field work with these companies. Now, you know, 2014 was the bulk of the of the research um, mm-hmm. for the book. So like that's one thing that I do think may be changing over time. But certainly at the time, um the fact that these logs of behavioral data were kind of a privileged source of information, made it possible for someone to say, you know, I'm not like them. I should not pretend that I know what they want, which we might say, good, good. That's right. That's right. Uh, Therefore, I'm going to figure out what they're like by looking at this listening history, right? I'm going to use this medium to sort of figure out what they're like. And if it turns out, if you try to look at people through this specific infrastructure, uh, they look a lot like the shape of that infrastructure, right? How do they vary? Well, they vary primarily in terms of how much they click because look, here's a list of all the clicks that they did. Look how big this one is. Look how small that one is, uh, right? That becomes like a very substantial part of what distinguishes people from each other just because that's the shape of the infrastructure.
0: That's fascinating, especially, I mean, um, when I think a lot about, uh, and this is in some of my own work that I'm, that I'm, I'm actually <laughs> finding this in remarkably uh almost suspiciously <laughs> unchanged ways from the very beginnings of music consumption, this kind of dual especially like dual conceptualization of female listeners as on one side, avid super fans, you know <laughs> who consume un uncritically but with real intensity and the other this passive listener, and that how could both possibly be true but 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 thinking about what you're saying about this infrastructure and the ways in which... People end up looking like these infrastructures that's shaped by a set of somewhat unreflective, unreflective assumptions. It also makes sense why some of these companies have been unable to grab hold of, you know, famously unable to grab hold of all kinds of monetary streams that uh, non-click based music (laughs) produces.
1: Yeah, it's it's a lot of it is a lot of it is very click shaped. Uh, in the same way that, you know, early recommender systems were very numbers shaped, right? They were ratings shaped. Uh, and I think that that's a really useful thing to keep in mind. And this is why in one of the sort of weird, I, I don't think I've done justice here to the sort of weird anthropological tangents that this book goes into. Um, but in this chapter that we've been sort of talking about here, there's a very long part about the anthropology of animal trapping, where I, God, talk, the trapping was awesome. <laughs> where I talk about the sort of mechanisms <laughs> of traps. As a, as a sort of metaphor for understanding what's going on in recommender systems. And I do think that actually this analogy is useful um, because if we say, as I did earlier, that technologies have embedded in them a kind of model of their user, and if a trap the user is ironically enough, the entity that's going to be trapped, um, then we can look at those systems, right? The design of those systems and sort of see mm-hmm. how they apprehend their Sorry, that was an unintentional pun how they apprehend their users and catch them. Uh, and I think that we can start to imagine, you know, other ways of doing this and say, well, you know, OK, if you're click shaped now, then, of course, we're interested in clicks. If you're ratings shaped, um, then we're interested in in, in ratings. Uh, and what else could we do? Right. Like what other what other ways of imagining the shape of listening behavior are there? Um that might get built into these systems, right? There's a kind of speculative mode uh, that we can enter into that says, you know, we're not going to eradicate technology from these settings. And arguably, certain forms of recommender system can be legitimately useful to musicians, to listeners, right? It's not uh, out of, uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that there's a place for some form of recommender systems, even in a sort of utopian future however they certainly can't look like they tend to look today
0: yeah and so kind of kind of to wrap up the book as you move into like the last part of it there is this move then in some ways from i would say the kind of kind of this this modeling of consumers to a modeling based on a series of um pretty serious breakthroughs in computational ability and power and technique that have begun to occur, um, start really, seems like, kicking into high gear towards the end of the 2010s, that all of a sudden there's this real move to start, it seems like, turn the gaze almost from the listeners to the music itself, and then start to sort and analyze and categorize the music to better take music and feed it to these different groups of listeners in more or less effective ways and different times of day and in all the kinds of um vibe spa- vibe, you know, the vibe-based economy that that uh gets discussed so much. <laughs> and, you know, this kind of like proliferation of genres that if anyone remembers like Spotify's like year-end reviews in like 2018, 2019, where you're like, you're into like moody dream pop, <laughs> and you're like, that's not A genre and you kind of break this down this whole process i think in a really useful way as the difference between sounds and scenes as ways of thinking about genre and ways of thinking about music um that kind of undergird this like next development of kind of computing taste
1: yeah it's a that's a that's a great way to put it i think that in this discussion of genre in in the book i'm really you know uh beholden to some great accounts of genre and the development of genre by by sociologists and musicologists. So one of those people is, is Jen Lena, who's got a great book called Banding Together about how genres come into existence. And there is this kind of sociological theory of genre, which I think I share, uh, which is that a genre, you know, we talk about genres being like about the sound of music, but it's better understood as being about the kind of social groupings that emerge around a sort of emergent form of music and alina gives a great account of how those social organizations kind of like come into existence over time and different ways they can come into existence um, but something like you know what you're describing that spotify does for instance is a little bit different right like if, if you uh, are an artist and you put your music on spotify you might discover uh, that you're part of a genre that you did not realize that you were a part of uh you know that it will you will turn out in the end that the that you were actually in this genre all along um so the musicologist Eric Draught has written about this and has a has a great point which I uh repeat in the book, which is that you know this changes what genre is from the reason that music is similar right the reason music of the same genre sounded similar before was because you knew what genre you were in and that was what you tried to make um, to being a kind of post facto description of musical similarity, um, which is no longer the reason that the music is similar, right? It's sort of now a label that gets attributed later on. It changes the kind of thing um, a a genre is. And so then I also cite another musicologist named Tom Johnson, um, who's got some great work on what he calls genre craft, which is, you know, how do genres emerge under under these conditions and they emerge in all sorts of weird genres emerge in all sorts of weird and contingent ways right there's lots of different things that can that can go into what a genre is when a genre is kind of like a cluster of of points Uh, and i think one thing that is surprising to people or i know it was surprising to early readers of the book uh, is that you get to you know chapter four or something i think it is in the book where i start to talk about musical sound And they say, wait a minute, what have we been talking about this whole time? I thought we were talking about like musical data. (laughs) And, you know, we haven't been because for most of the history of music recommenders, musical audio has not been part of it, right? It's been, you know, tangential to the way that music is recommended. It's much more, you know, listeners who listened to that also listened to this. Uh, and that's it. That it doesn't have to be music. That could be recipes. That could be jokes. That could be hotels. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, content specific. However, since the beginning, I don't want to say that it's a new thing. Um, but since, you know, even since the mid nineties, there have been people trying to integrate content based stuff into recommenders to say, well, of course there's this, this, this intuition that the reason you like a piece of music has something to do with what it sounds like. It's not just, you know, what your friends like. Uh, and so people try to bring it in. And music is a funny domain because, you know, there's this idea of sound and mathematics that makes it seem particularly amenable to being captured by a computer, right? You don't have quite the same thing going on on like Netflix, for instance, where you would have like a machine vision system, like watch a movie and tell you what genre it is, at least not that I've seen. Um, certainly not as prevalent as in is in music, where there's really a lot of work that imagines. Like, well, it seems like if humans are listening, with the sort of frequency analyzers in our head, then why can't a computer do the same thing? And I talk about that a bit in the book. Um, In any case, audio data is part of these systems, but it's often a sort of optional part. And it's brought in in sort of little weird ways into the ensembles that are these recommender systems in the end. Uh, That begins to change in a big way. Yeah. So I think that um, like you start to see a lot more inclusion of audio data um, as it becomes more computationally tractable to do so. And because if there's any consistent thrust here, it's that people are always adding more and more and more and more data sources into their systems. And so sure, why not? Uh, Why not use audio? I sort of outline in the book one method of representing the audio data And I do try to go to pains to not call that the music itself. It's very handy to imagine that the audio is like actually the music, but as you know, philosophers of music will make this point, but like if there's a interesting and thorny question about what the music itself actually is, right? Like what is it, what is the reality of a song? Is it a particular recording? Is it, you know, some abstract entity that the recording is like part of there's it's a weird question if you dig down into it. And so um, I don't want to suggest that the audio is like, more real than some other data about the music, but many people take it to be, you know, actually, actually the music. It's the audio data that's the real, that's the real stuff. But even then, there are so many options in how it's represented, how it's parsed, how it's, you know, clustered together uh, that it, you'd be hard pressed to say that this is some like objective representation of anything. There's really a lot of ways um, that audio data can get analyzed, and if you, and some of the ways that might feel pretty objective result in outcomes that are very bizarre, right? So like a basic audio similarity system is never going to be used by a recommender system as like a first pass thing. You might say like, no, only give me that. Like only give me stuff that sounds similar. That's what I want. What will happen if you do that is you will get really weird similarity across genres that you think aren't similar, but that the computer for some reason, uh, things sound similar to each other. Uh, and you know, you don't want it in general. Uh, And so what happens usually in practice is that people will um, sort of bin things by by genre in some other way first, right? Like people tend to listen to these together uh, and then we'll do audio on that to make sure that you don't accidentally have, you know, I don't know, uh, monster ballads showing up in your uh, smooth jazz playlist or something like that.
0: And I feel like this is kind of where the genre question and the ways in which the kind of move from shaping from clustering listeners to clustering musical recordings for similarity. I feel like that's kind of where the the rubber hits the road in terms of the clear impact of these recommendation systems in the world. And you have a really interesting, you, you describe kind of this like <laughs> Madagascar shaped Island of music. That is the, um like <laughs> the official Spotify Atlas of all the music <laughs> on it. And what's really interesting to me is the ways in which certain kinds of music are chopped up into specifically kind of like mainstream Western musics are chopped up into all these kind of micro genres that are like seemingly placeless that pull people in based on vibe. Um, Though I think that when you were um, talking through this island, maybe vibe was still just over the horizon, like full full vibes (laughs) was just
1: over the horizon. Yeah, we weren't you we weren't calling them vibes i don't know maybe some of them might be vibes
0: um but but also that there are all these geographic descriptions in there right miami base Biley funk um you know that that reflect the continued importance of scenes of you know communities of practitioners and listeners that engage with each other in various places or various ways and then are kind of also incorporated into this broader like mass musical dragnet and it does seem like this is where we've started to get the 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 profound impacts of these algorithmic networks on kind of the world out or algorithmic systems on the world outside them in really interesting ways and in ways that that I had not understood I guess before reading this book seem to kind of emerge out of that we're crazy music nerds, but the people out there and then eventually like the music out there is is kind of material to be organized, maybe.
1: Yeah, I will say this is one way I think to pivot sort of toward the end of the book uh and to connect this together is that um a lot of critiques of recommender systems are predicated on the idea that these systems are kind of all-encompassing uh, and that they're going to have these effects on culture because everything is getting run through them, and I think that that is becoming true. However, I don't think it used to be true. And mm-hmm. so, in the epilogue, in the epilogue to the book, I, I, I talk about this interview that I did with with someone from who I knew from the field, but didn't get a chance to really interview for several years uh, until later when you know I had finished my my PhD and he had left music uh, uh, music streaming and uh so we got to talk about it and it's this epilogue to the book is you know a lot about the regrets that this that this one guy had uh which end up being i think sort of symptomatic which is to say that people building these systems you know 10 years ago uh or more when i started working on this stuff i don't think they anticipated how successful they were going to be because this is another one of those interface things that's hard to remember but you know 10 years ago the the music recommender system was kind of a gimmick that was in the corner of the interface right it was not everything it was not the sort of gaping of content that you encountered whenever you went on online um and things that made sense when it was kind of a little side gizmo to just play with and be like i don't know give me a recommendation then i'll go do something else they don't make sense or they change when all of a sudden, everything is getting run through them. Uh, when you have some really dramatic centralization of, of streaming music, for instance, such that a decision that's made by you know one arbitrary team at Spotify can have a really outsized effect on how a lot of music listening around the world happens. And I think that's a big deal. And that is, to a certain extent, I think the issue with with recommendation today is this centralization
0: mhm
1: that you know uh, and i wouldn't say that we really need like a recommenderless world to solve that problem but i do think that a world in which you know there is a singular logic of recommendation that everyone gets sort of funneled through uh, or if there's multiple logics then you know the system that determines which logic you get is, is is singular and is centralized um i think that's a big that's a big issue and so you see some of that in um you know it's it's almost anticipated in the book where I talk about some of the colonial aspects of music discovery language, these questions about you know drawing maps of the musical world and exploring them and coming back home with the goodies that you found from from out there in, in music land. but it's uh, you know that's a real that's a real issue, and I think it's something that um, people working in this space were not ready for. I don't think that they anticipated being as successful as they were, and it's easy to forget because they were successful, that it was not always obvious. And that for most of the time I was doing my field work, even the idea that a recommender system worked well was kind of a joke. Like nobody really thought these systems did a good job. (laughs) And now people think that they work so well, that they're so good at anticipating your preferences that that's the problem, right? Like a filter bubble thesis, for instance, is predicated on the idea that your filter works, right? That your filter isn't constantly right. screwing up and accidentally putting in stuff that it's not intending to. Um, so there's this, and, and also that, you know, you're obeying it. Uh, so this idea that you're, that it works so well, uh, that it's a problem is I think an interesting historical shift, um, from an earlier moment where these systems were, you know, curiosities and really people didn't think that they worked very well at all.
0: Yeah, and I mean, just to bring home, like, the ways in which power has really reshaped this. I mean, at some level, for all—I mean, we could enumerate the reasons. Like, there's no world in which Spotify is going to incorporate a Ringo-like self-description as an option to shape all of your algorithmic recommendations.
1: That would be (laughs) pretty—that would be pretty unlikely— Um, I remember, so to give one example that people listening might be familiar with, if you think of like Pandora radio, right? So Pandora is well known in the United States and not really anywhere else because it's dependent on the U S mechanical licensing infrastructure. Um, but you know, Pandora has often stood as the recommender system that is very content focused because they have this famous music genome project where there's, you know, human experts tagging songs um, with a lot of musical attributes and then they use those as a way to sort of you know make comparisons um and of course if you listen to a pandora station you'll give thumbs up and thumbs down you'll skip songs and stuff so i i remember being at a conference um where all the people there were not did not work at pandora um people were, were speculating about it and they were saying you know there's no way that pandora does not use your skipping behavior as input into the system, like even though they say, "Oh, here's the audio data, whatever," like it would be foolish to not use all of the sort of, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, skipping stuff, turn up the volume, any of that behavioral data because they have it because people do it, uh, and you know, this was not substantiated ever, um, but it was this common sense of people working in this sector that, like, you know, there's no there's no beating that behavioral data for the amount of it, right? Because people just are generating it constantly and for the reliability of it because people will imagine, you know, they'd always tell these stories like, you know, the Netflix example was always, you know, people put the Criterion collection movies, which you can't even get on Netflix anymore, you know, at the top of their list, like, oh yeah, I love these five stars, whatever. Um, but they don't want to watch them. <laughs> <So> <laughs> if you made rec- If you made recommendations of those, uh, that would be a bad recommendation because it would not result in someone actually like watching that movie. Uh, you would be full of it. And you could argue, you know, maybe you should do that. And I think there are people who've done research that suggest, you know, what if we built a recommender system to allow that kind of behavior to work? You say, I want to be the kind of person who watches the Criterion collection movies, and the recommender system is going to help me do that. You know, why not? And you could, in theory, tune it that way. But I think you're right that it, I would not expect to see that in a you know, mass market streaming service of any sort, just because this idea that, you know, behavior is reality, this kind of behaviorist um, faith in what, you know, in, in in data to show what's really going on is so strong um, that I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who's like, yeah, sure, let's not do that. Let's let people to say what they like. There, There's a lot of interest in, you know, pointing out the differences between people's actual listening behavior and what they say about their preferences and you know in this in this space this idea being you know when people talk they lie and when people actually listen they're telling the truth and i don't think we have to agree with that necessarily um but it is interesting to note that these can be very different from each other
0: well nick i want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk the book folks is computing taste i would definitely recommend checking it out, not just for an extended discussion of various forms of trapping techniques, um, but also for uh, a really incisive analysis of the internal workings of music technology in a way that I just don't think exists anywhere else. So again, Nick, thanks for the seven to 10 years of research and writing that produced (laughs) it and um for coming on the show to talk about it
1: thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure